Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 43 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we have a conversation with entrepreneur Jimmy Wales, who is the co founder of the online nonprofit encyclopedia known as Wikipedia, as well as the for profit web hosting company Wikia. Interviewing him is Lion Tree's London based executive in residence, Mr. Ed Vasey. It's a deep dive with a man whose creation continues to have a foundational impact on online research, education, college students everywhere, and culture. Enjoy. My name's Ed Vasey. I'm an executive in residence uh, at Lion Tree, as well as being a British Member of Parliament and a former Minister for Technology. I'm here with Jimmy Wales, the brilliant founder of Wikipedia, and we're doing this interview in London, in the offices of Lion Tree Europe. A couple of things to say. I think Jimmy has a cold, so you might be able to detect that. And also, because London is booming in anticipation of uh, Brexit in fewer than 150 days, you might pick up the odd sound of construction work outside the office, which is uh, unavoidable, I'm afraid. But, you know, take it as a sign of economic growth as we talk about the <laughs> booming uh, phenomenon that is Wikipedia. It's a pleasure to see you this morning, Jimmy. Oh, very good. Good to be here. We're recording this in London because you're now a UK resident. I am. But uh, I'm not going to do this podcast <laughs> in a very sophisticated way. I'm just going to go straight through the chronology. <laughs> Perfect. And yes. ask for lots of insight and information on your extraordinary internet career, which I think, although obviously you did a few things beforehand, started Mm. really with the foundation of um, Wikipedia in 2001, when you were probably in your early 30s. Early 30s, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I do know that one of the sort of genesis of Wikipedia might have been the fact that you had an encyclopedia when you were a very young boy. Yeah. And were obsessed by it because you were taught in a one-room school. One-room schoolhouse, yes. Yeah, no, I had a and very... And your learning came from yeah. diving into the encyclopedia. Yeah, I had a very unusual, I would say, educational background. I went to a very small private school that my mother and grandmother set up deep in the deep south in Alabama. Well, we had multiple sets of encyclopedias, but the main one we had at home was the World Book Encyclopedia, which is an encyclopedia for children, really. I remember every year they would send out the annual update. And so, for example, my mother bought the encyclopedia when I was born, basically. And so there was a big update about the moon because people landed on the moon and and so forth. And what we would do is they would send the update volume, the annual update, and then they would have these stickers that you could go and you could stick into the original encyclopedia to say, this article has been updated. So I I joke that even as a child, I was editing the encyclopedia and updating it. Um, Yeah, I still remember that. Yeah. So it was lovely. And uh, I've always had a great love of broad knowledge and uh, don't underestimate me in a pub quiz. I'm pretty good. (laughs) <laughs> I'll test you. I'll test you at the end. Actually, Lion Tree, Lion Tree loves its quizzes. So every mm. event we have, we always have a good quiz. So we'll have to get you along to one. My wife's family, they always do the Guardian Christmas quiz. And I find it incredibly difficult because it's quite routine pop culture references about the 70s in the UK are a, a bit beyond me. I'm, I'm not that good at the East Enders. So. so how did Wikipedia come about? Because I am sort of cutting around, but there are some amazing stats about Wikipedia. I mean, the thing I love about Wikipedia is it's kind of there in the background. 
every day you'll read an article about Google, about Amazon, about Netflix dominating the internet, and yet one of the most dominant players, we never really talk about it. And mm. there are some incredible stats about yeah. the amount of people who use it. The, yeah, well, we just have, give us some of the headlines. According to Comscore, around 400 million visitors every month. But we know from our internal server logs that's an underestimate, probably because we're so global. And Comscore is much better at measuring traffic and developed advertising markets. So that's their business model. We know from our internal server logs that we see about 1.3 billion devices every month. So that doesn't mean 1.3 billion people because obviously most people in the developed world will see Wikipedia on their phone and their laptop or what have you. But it's a lot of people and continues to grow. And uh, we're seeing a lot of growth now in the languages of the developing world, which is quite important to us. And we've got thousands and thousands of volunteers all around the world. So you've got roughly sort of arguably a billion users a month. You've got how many articles are on there now? There's about, in all the languages, I think it's around 40 million now. 40 million articles. Yeah, but over 5 million in English. 5 million in English. How many other languages? There's about 288 languages that have been set up, but the last 88 of those or so are quite small. Uh, have you got a pub of- quiz uh, question that we can say, what is the least <laughs> used language on Wikipedia? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, it's actually hard to measure the least used. I'm actually very curious now. Because some of the languages that we've set up the website and the interface has been translated, but they don't really have many users and so forth. So I always say I don't really count a language as launched until it has a thousand entries because that's right. when there's usually a small community there. And you're the fifth most viewed website yeah, in the world. fifth most viewed. I think that's about right, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is if you think about, Wikipedia is now 17 years old. And so if you think about kids who are at university now, Wikipedia has existed since the time they were learning to read. And certainly in the last 10 years, the period when they would have been turning to the internet you know, in their teenage years for homework or for personal interest, Wikipedia has just been ubiquitous. And so, as you say, you know, we hear a lot of news about Google and Amazon and so on, but particularly for the young generation, Wikipedia is like air. It's just always been there. It's yeah. kind of mysterious to people that there's this amazing thing. And a lot of people don't know that we're a charity. I mean, a lot of people do know that, but oftentimes people come up to me and say, mm, how, how do you make money? I say, well, we're a charity. We don't make money. We exist from donations. The vast majority of money that runs Wikipedia is small donors. Um, That's right. I think you've got an amazing stat about how many people give to Wikipedia. Yeah, again, you must it's be one of the largest. Over two million different donors every year, and giving well, an average of about twenty dollars in that range. You know, we've got. Some major donors, but that's a relatively small portion of it. No advertising. It's not like most of the internet, that's for sure. And take us behind the scenes. I mean, I'm a very insignificant public figure in the UK, and I have a Wikipedia entry, which I don't get to write. These shadowy figures called editors write it. <laughs> and as a politician, I won't shy away from the fact it can be quite irritating. Your, yeah, your misdemeanors tend to get more coverage on your <laughs> Wikipedia page than your amazing triumphs. Who are these mysterious editors? Are there 70,000 of them or more? 70,000 is uh, maybe a number around how many people make at least five edits a month. But really, if someone's only making five edits a month, they're modestly active. But the real core community is a few thousand people who are making 100 plus edits a month. Who are they? A lot of geeks, people who just take it as a hobby. People are passionate about information and knowledge. You know, one of the things about 
Wikipedia is that we've always said we're not a wide open free speech forum. Everything should have a reference, quality reference. Quite famously, some time ago, a year and a half ago, maybe, I can't remember exactly, we decided that the Daily Mail wasn't really a good quality source. So it's generally frowned upon to use that as a source, although it's not banned completely. The Mail of course, took this very graciously, as you can imagine. <laughs> they went mental, actually. There's a lot of debate and discussion constantly in the community about neutrality. How do we reach neutrality? What is a quality source? One of the big discussion points in biographies is always what we would call undue emphasis. I remember an example of a very minor city council member in a small town in the U.S. where, and he'd been in the city council for 30 years. His Wikipedia entry was a paragraph or so about his work, two long paragraphs about his son driving under the influence conviction, and that was it. And that was removed quite quickly once it was brought to people's attention because that's clearly not a biography, you know, it's just uh, somebody who doesn't like the family or whatever. We try to get it right, but obviously it's a... And wh- when, how does all this happen? You, you've got, say, these few thousand passionate editors <clears throat> who've taken up Wikipedia as their hobby, yeah. and how do they communicate with each other and... and well, Almost by osmosis, decide yeah, these rules of the road. Largely through the website. We also have local meetups everywhere. We also have chat rooms and things like that that people use, IRC channels and things. But largely it's on the website. One of the organizing features of the website is what we call a wiki project. So we'll have wiki project uh, UK Parliament. Actually, no, there's a wiki project peerage that's all about the various peers, both historical and the House of Lords and so on. And in those areas, people who are interested in that topic will come together and they'll make lists, they'll go around and rate the quality of the articles and they'll have a project of the month and so forth. And so they'll review and plan what they need more coverage of. They may go through every single member of parliament and flag oh, this, particularly for a new member of parliament, you'll often say, well, we don't have very much. We need to flesh this out. That's one of the organizing mechanisms. Everybody who's an active editor has a watch list. So anything you edit goes onto your watch list. And then oh, see, any yeah. further updates you'll see. There's a lot of different mechanisms that people use to coordinate and to discuss things. But is there a kind of central board that is the final arbiter? Not really, not, not on content. I mean, the community elects administrators, and the administrators are, they're like police. In other words, they're not judge, jury, and executioner. They're subject to a lot of rules about what they can and can't do. And if you don't do a good job as an administrator, you can lose your privileges. Then there's the arbitration committee, which is elected by the community and was, until fairly recently, then appointed by me, but that was just a formality. My role in, particularly in English Wikipedia, is, is very much like the UK monarch. I have certain theoretical powers, which I'm not allowed to use. So, (laughs) but I can, for example, call an election. Like if the arbitration committee goes bonkers and there's a big outcry in the community, I can insist that we have a a new election. And then, so, you know, there, there are those in the arbitration committee, they don't really decide content issues. It's more about behavioral issues to say, if there's a big fight broken out, they can ban people in a, in a more long-term way, or they can place certain articles under restrictions and so on. But it's complicated. There is a whole social structure. And, you know, much like any kind of democratic structure, it bumbles along, it works, and it doesn't work. I mean, I think in various uh, measures, you know, Wikipedia itself is obviously an extraordinary thing, an amazing kind of creation. And to a certain extent, already one feels kind of nostalgia for (laughs) Wikipedia representing the internet as it used to be or how one Mm. hoped it would be compared to how the internet is 
today. So I want to spend some time kind of reflecting. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things when we talk about the scale of Wikipedia and how many people see Wikipedia, one of the things to, to note is that in a typical country around the world, in a typical month, about one third of the people online see Wikipedia, which is a lot. But it also makes me think, how do you go an entire month without visiting Wikipedia even once? <laughs> so two thirds of the people are on the internet and they're not visiting Wikipedia. So what the hell are they doing? I, I well, I, I could make an educated guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but one of the questions I was going to ask you was, we see a, a lot of the debates about the internet we see through a Western prism because we live mm. in the West and we use Google and we use Facebook and we use Netflix. Those companies are global and so is Wikipedia. When you talk about administrators and moderators and editors and guidelines, what happens with cultural clashes? Asian perspectives, Chinese perspectives, African perspectives, how does that kind of um, blend together? Basically what we've always done is taken a philosophical approach that Wikipedia should be neutral. Obviously you could grapple with what that means extensively, but typically for us, what it means is that on any controversial issue, Wikipedia itself shouldn't take a stand, but should fairly represent all the reasonable sides to the argument. And that goes a long way towards settling a lot of very hard disputes. So I always give the example, if you think of a very kind and thoughtful Catholic priest and a very kind and thoughtful Planned Parenthood activist, they're never going to agree on the subject of abortion. But they both can come to some kind of agreement to say, well, we can present the issue fairly. So the Catholic priest will understand that Wikipedia can't say abortion is a sin, but it can say the Catholic Church position on abortion is thus and such, and the Pope has said this, and opponents have responded with that. And it turns out a lot of people are actually pretty good at that. We live in an era where a lot of TV shows, particularly in the US, uh, around political issues are talking heads screaming at each other. But most ordinary people get the idea of saying, okay, well, like I can fairly represent what the other side has to say. It's not always easy. Emotions can be quite high in certain cases. I mean, certainly, just to give one example that I'm aware of, in Ukrainian Wikipedia, the issue of Crimea is quite difficult to cover in a dispassionate way because in the Maidan, one of our volunteers was killed by a sniper during the protest. So, Obviously, emotions are high around something like that. Still, even there, what we see is that the Russian Wikipedians and the Ukrainian Wikipedians do have a dialogue. They've sometimes met up in person to try to think about how can we do this fairly, because they're, they're more interested in presenting the facts and presenting the whole story so that people can understand than they are in pushing one agenda. But clearly, there are cases where that's quite hard to do. A less emotional and dramatic example this was called to my attention many, many years ago that in English Wikipedia, we made a very uncontroversial and simple claim, which all of us learned when we were eight years old, which is that the Wright brothers invented the airplane. <laughs> and apparently, if you ask French people, they've got a completely different story that's equally uncontroversial, that it was invented by this Brazilian guy who was living in France at the time. And it's a funny thing because I think most of us from childhood have a funny view of the invention of the airplane, you have all the old newsreel footage of people with weird flapping wing contraptions and so on. And then the Wright brothers invented the airplane. And that's obviously not true. It was an innovation that took place over a period of years. And there were various claims of advancements. And so we've moved away from the sort of seven-year-old's version of history to say, actually, it's a nuanced question of who invented the airplane. As it turns out, as I understand it, the Wright brothers were the first, their powered glider flew further than it would have 
without the power. So that's a perfectly valid claim to motorized flight. However, it didn't actually have the ability to go up, which is kind of important, right? So they glided down, but further than they would have. And this other chap who I have no idea his name, but uh, he actually went up for the first time. So it's a very interesting story. So that's the kind of conflict that's not as emotional as others, but it is interesting. And through Wikipedia, there's a lot of dialogue between different communities and people who can read more than one language will often raise a question to say, oh, well, this is interesting. We've got something completely different. There's a an island that's in dispute between Japan and Korea. Yeah, exactly. It's a complicated issue because both sides are basically only taught their version, but they're vaguely aware. For most sensible people, it's not that emotional. It's a useless rock in the ocean that the countries are fighting over for no reason. But that's a good point. What do you do when states intervene? I mean, the the whole tech clash thing that we're going to cover now, there's a whole host of now issues facing tech companies. One of the most high-profile one is Google search engine in China. So you you refuse to be censored by Chinese government. How do you intervene when a government intervenes and says, well, actually, you know, that Wikipedia entry is completely wrong. We're going to we're going to go in and hack it, basically. Mm. We're going to change the entry. Or if a government says we're going to try and prevent our citizens from seeing Wikipedia. It's very difficult to come in sort of as an outside manipulator into Wikipedia because we do have a strong community and community rules and so forth. And if people want to come in and raise a debate, obviously they can. But it's not so easy to overwhelm us with bots or things like that because we're not algorithmic. We're human beings. And so people can see through that kind of thing for the most part. The question of blocking. Currently, we're blocked only in two countries. We're blocked in China, which is an ongoing long-term issue. We've been up in China and down in China. We've never compromised. Um, Do you have editors in China? Yeah, we got a very passionate community in China. They use VPN software to get out of the firewall and they edit Wikipedia. I mean, what's interesting about the way the Chinese manage their firewall is that for the most part, they don't arrest citizens for accessing websites that are blocked. I think they understand that arresting some kid in Beijing who's editing Pokemon entries in Wikipedia is not actually all that important. The firewall basically acts as a chilling effect. It's a deterrent. We're also blocked in Turkey at the moment, and that one we're more hopeful will be lifted, but it's it's a complicated problem. In these cases, we have had specific demands to change certain content which we won't change and we won't change it because it's well referenced and balanced and the fact that the government doesn't like it that's just too bad i think it was a surprise this is my personal opinion that it was a surprise to turkey uh, when they blocked us i don't think they realized that we wouldn't back down because a lot of the other internet players do back down instantly because they've got various reasons. They have financial incentives. Financial incentives. And we actually have, in a certain sense, obviously we're incredibly noble, haha, but our financial incentives are our donors and our volunteers are quite passionate about the purity of Wikipedia and they would be very disappointed in us if we decided that we would censor wikipedia in turkey because the government doesn't like it it just well anyway i would go mental like so there's that yeah in the past we were filtered in a lot more countries and so the filtering meant that in various countries you could access wikipedia but they would block certain pages they would block the page of a particular opposition leader or a dissident or something like that Eventually, we moved to being SSL, so HTTPS. So it's like when you visit your bank. So we're encrypted now, which means that if someone's spying on your connection or trying to filter your connection, the only thing they can see is that you're talking to Wikipedia. They can't see which page you're viewing. 
And so what that means is that governments no longer have the policy option of just filtering certain pages they don't like. So it's all or none. And so when we made that move, we weren't sure whether we would end up being blocked in 25 countries or what would happen. And in fact, virtually every country, with the exception of China and Turkey, that came later, but virtually every country decided it's actually worth it to have all of Wikipedia rather than none. And if that means people can read about things we don't want them to read about, so be it. That's where we are today. So our move to encryption was very positive for freedom of expression. Obviously, the most obvious issue that springs to mind when you're talking about this is fake news. A couple of things arise from Wikipedia's position on fake news. One is uh, the sort of backlash against YouTube, because I think YouTube have mm. said they're going to use Wikipedia to kind of counter extremist yeah. or fake news videos, if you like, on YouTube. You know, if somebody's got a video about the moon landings not happening, there'll be a, w- a link to Wikipedia to show that they did. And the, the reason I say there's a backlash yeah. is because people are saying, hold on, you know, this multi-billion dollar company is relying on a not-for-profit yeah. <laughs> volunteer-run organization yeah. to fact-check its own videos. So yeah. that's point number one, is, yeah. is what you think about that. But the second point, I think, is is more wide to do with the problems, for example, that Facebook has faced. You've built up this organic community that sort of acts almost like the sort of antibodies in your body when, mm. when there's a sort of invasion. Why haven't Facebook beaten a path to your door to say... Jimmy, give us some insights. How can you create a community that could potentially police fake news? I mean, clearly it's a different problem Facebook faces because anyone can put anything on Facebook. Yeah. You have a filter yeah. system yeah. in a positive way yeah. on Wikipedia. Yeah, so on those two things, the YouTube thing was just amusing because they basically mucked it up when they made this grand announcement without actually mentioning it to us first. So suddenly the press is coming to us saying, oh, tell us about the YouTube partnership. We're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. So that was funny. I teased them about that. (laughs) In fact, it's fine. Like if people want to use Wikipedia in that way, we don't have any problem with that. That's our goal is to free knowledge for everyone and to to support a thoughtful dialogue in society is incredibly on point for us. So that's completely fine. It would be fine if they wanted to donate a bit of money. That would be good too. Sometimes people say, well, why are you always asking for money on the website? Why don't you just get Google and Apple and Amazon and Facebook to pay for it? And I I say, well, look, do you really want that? Realistically, I think there is great value in Wikipedia being supported by the general public, but the big companies should chip in as well, of course. I talk to people at Facebook. I talk to the people who specifically looking at the question of fake news and, and so forth. And it is hard. I, I'm sympathetic to the problem that Facebook faces. And what I always remind people when people say, well, Facebook should do something about this, uh, is if you imagine a slightly different set of historical circumstances, if Facebook said to us five years ago, uh, we're going to start to shape people's view of the world by deciding which news is true or not. I mean, that's our dystopian fear of Facebook. And so that nobody really wants Facebook deciding what's true or not. At the same time, I think they have come to understand that there is a quality of information issue and that if people are sharing things that are completely bogus, they maybe should deserve to be warned at least. So here's an example. There was a viral article that said uh, Pope endorses Trump. And for anybody who's sophisticated, you would say, well, this is obviously ludicrous. The Pope (laughs) never endorses political candidates. And this particular Pope, whatever you may think of the Pope in the Catholic Church, he seems like a really nice guy, right? (laughs) Unlikely to endorse Trump. That got shared thousands of times across the different platforms. You know, my view is, obviously, I don't 
want Facebook to say, no, you're not allowed to share that with your friends. But maybe if I do start to share something like that and it has been debunked, that they warn me first to say, oh, by the way, you might want to check this because it's it's been flagged to us as potentially fake. And before you share it, you might want to look into it. And then if I want to share it, fine, it's on me. It's hard. It's a tough area. And, you know, for Wikipedia, what's interesting is that a news headline like that would never be put into Wikipedia because the Wikipedia community, there are news junkies and they, they spend a huge amount of time debating the quality of news sources. They would take one look at that and go, that's obviously fake. And the problem of a lot of the sharing of fake news is that it is being shared and reshared through communities of people who are not interested in politics. They're not interested in news. And uh, I think sometimes it's, it, you have to be careful not to speak in a condescending way about that because the truth is in a free society, people have every right to have zero interest in politics. They've got other things to do. They've got their kids to look after and so on. Hard for those of us who are news junkies to get that. But even those people, when they do decide, you know, oh, hey, actually, I heard there's this big referendum about Brexit. I should find out what's going on. They deserve to have quality information at that point in time. And that's, that is where I think the current arrangements in the world are failing people, that they are being fed information through social media, whether it's sponsored or just nonsense circulating, that is not accurate. And they're making decisions based on that. Part of what makes this problem quite complicated is it's often fairly invisible to a lot of people. Like, exactly. I would never see a headline that says Pope endorses Trump because my friends are news junkies would never uh, that, share. And that is the point. I mean, you know, we've always had propaganda and fake news, but it's just unbelievably efficient now. Say the difference between Facebook and Wikipedia is a difference between... It's almost like your purpose. I mean, I'm very interested in, in the point you make. And I do also have sympathy with Facebook that... At the end of the day, if these are just people sharing stuff between each other, they should be free to share it. And it's the difference between going into a library where you're expecting a certain level of information if you go yeah. to the librarian and going into the pub yeah. where you might expect the person yeah. sitting next to you over a beer to spin you a yeah, line yeah, that yeah. the Pope is yeah, uh, I, endorsing I've, Trump. I've joked before that it's very difficult for Facebook in some ways to talk about this because they can't very well come out and say... Frankly, people should stop listening to their idiot friends. Yeah. You know? well, the trouble is <laughs> not really. But the, but the people, the people pushing this stuff, of course, are not necessarily their friends. They're often state actors who yeah, yeah, yeah. And know is, how to play this, this system very well. So I think Facebook does sit somewhere in the middle. It's, it's not quite just a, it does. a friends yeah. just sharing banter, yeah. as it were, through to being mm-hmm. a, uh, an authorized quality news site. Yeah. But it is somewhere in the middle. And, and I do think, in, in particular, when there are cases of paid sponsorship of bad content, falsehoods, I think Facebook does bear a certain amount of moral responsibility. Now, what legally, how should we arrange the law to deal with that? I'm not advocating anything in particular, but from an ethical point of view, it's not good to take money from state actors to promote falsehoods undermining democracy. That's a bad thing to do. One of the things I think that Facebook should do, and they shouldn't wait until legislation forces it on them, is they should adopt a policy that for all political advertising of any kind, not just political, like direct political advertising. In the, in the U.S. anyway, there's a pretty good distinction between candidates and their campaigns and third parties and issue advocacy. If I were in charge of Facebook, I would say, I want all of that, that we're going to be super transparent, that if you're paying for an ad, people have a right when they see an advert that says, well, there was one here in the U.K., aimed at vegans saying we can finally protect animal rights if only we leave Europe because Europe won't let us do this thing. 
And then, of course, you'll find completely opposite. You know, finally, we can have fox hunting back because Europe won't. You can have completely contradictory messages, which is actually something that is new because in the old days of propaganda, you still had to have one consistent story. Now they tell different stories to everyone. But I, I think people have a right. You click to say who paid for this ad, that it is sponsored content and that somebody paid for it and who paid for it is quite important. And that's something I think Facebook should do. Now, obviously, when you get into the details, it's quite hard to say who's paying for what. It can, can be quite mysterious because you can yes. have a front organization you know and it's hard to trace deeper but i think there are steps like that that could be helpful yeah i agree and you know we have a regulation in the uk the electoral commission so you could do it that way so facebook should check if somebody comes to pay for an ad are they registered with the electoral commission there are ways around that but you've also decided to take on fake news from the front with wiki tribune so yes i've been reading some stories about wiki tribune Mm. in the last couple of weeks yeah yeah so I'll, i'll just give you the basic overview there is the, is the idea of Wiki Tribune is a, it's a pilot project to try to bring something new to the space of journalism. What I look at is on most news websites, this is the traditional news website, you, what you see is here's the article posted by the journalists and then down below the worst people in humanity yelling at each other. And so that community involvement in news has not been very productive. And yet, if we step back and we look at the world of Wikipedia, we say, actually, but there are really thoughtful, kind people out there who want to get it right, who understand how to engage in a dialogue with people they don't agree with. Is there a way we can empower people to participate in the process of journalism and news that is healthier and more productive? And the ultimate idea there is to say, look, we want to combine the the efforts of professional journalists with the efforts of good quality community members in a way that Ideally, you you reduce the overall cost of doing journalism so that you can hire more journalists with whatever money that you get. So it's a pilot project. I can't say it's been a roaring success so far. The community is growing. It takes time to grow a community. And we've done major redesign of the website. Uh, The first go was a very beautiful website that didn't really invite participation. Now it's much more of a raw, earthy feel of a website that people feel more comfortable jumping in and getting involved. But yeah, I'm having fun trying to figure that out. Who knows if I will or not, but I'm having a go at it. What have been the kind of teething problems? What have you come across that you didn't expect to happen? One of the biggest ones was that, you know, in our original design, and I take full responsibility for this, we we made a beautiful website that looked a lot like the front page of the BBC News or CNN, the standard kind of news website look, but with significantly less content because we're a very small team. I didn't really completely recognize that that look is a design language that says, here's something you can read, not here's a way you can participate. And so we set up a system that it was very intimidating for people to participate. You had to have a complete news story from scratch and submit it for approval. It was just really hard to do. It wasn't very collaborative. And so what I learned is like, actually, we need to be much more casual. We need to actually start with a very open system, let people write what they want to write. We've made a lot of changes and... um, well, we'll see. And keeping up to date and prioritizing what's news and what isn't is, must be difficult for Wikitribute. Yeah, kind of. But, you know, my, my view is that we should be quite eclectic about that sort of thing. That particularly for this project, what did Theresa May say this morning? That's actually perfectly well covered by the existing media. And we have no way to beat them at that. Theresa May held a press conference. The reporters were there. They reported what she said. End of. Whereas there's a lot more, I would say, long form explainer things that the media isn't always as good at. Uh, 
quite famously, Wikipedia is a fantastic place to go for certain types of things. So one of my favorite examples to illustrate how Wikipedia handles a lot of news stories is the Grenfell Tower fire. Most people have probably heard of it. This is an enormous fire in a tall apartment building in London. Many, many lives were lost. And it's quite a controversy simply because this is a, a council housing project, as we call it in America, in one of the wealthiest communities, but it's a very poor part of that community. And uh, this caused a lot of angst around how are we treating people in society and who's responsible and all that. The Wikipedia entry from that very morning, people jumped in very quickly. They were gathering sources. It's quite neutral. And if you missed that story in the media, you know, you've, you're away on holiday or something and you come back, you would ha- maybe have a hard time figuring out what the hell is going on. Yeah. But you would just turn to the Wikipedia entry because it's always going to have that summary in a very clear way of what happened. But within that, one of the things that I thought was very interesting is there was for a period of time a question about the cladding on the side of the building because it turned out the cladding on the side of the building was flammable and there were questions about is that legal or illegal and there were conflicting reports. And for Wikipedia, that was something that people struggled with to say, well, look, this person said that it's illegal in the US and in the rest of Europe, but it's legal in the UK. Someone else said, no, it's illegal in the UK. I don't actually remember how it was settled out in the end. And that was a question that for the Wikipedians, they weren't really able to answer because they yeah. don't have journalists on staff. So my idea for Wikitribune would be that if we have a community doing a story like that, they're gathering information from all the different sources, but now they've got a, a question that's partly a desk research question, but partly just somebody needs to get a fire law expert on the phone to say, what is the legal status here? That's relevant because if it's illegal and some contractor substituted the wrong material, that's quite bad on them. If it's legal, then we have to question why was it legal to build a building in such a dangerous way? Is the failure on the law? Where's the blame? And that's the kind of question that I think deserves to be answered in the so, media as quickly as possible. Just a couple of other areas of kind of tech policy that you might have views on and be interested in. I mean, I obviously have focused on fake news and content and how you regulate tech. One of the other big issues is net neutrality. Is that a big issue for you for Wikipedia? Y- yes and no. I mean, it doesn't necessarily... Didn't you shut down Wikipedia us. for a day? That was not around net neutrality. Yeah, so that was around proposed law in the U.S. about copyright. It was about blocking websites with copyright violations. So that is a big issue. That is a big Euro- issue in Europe at the moment. A big issue in Europe at the moment. I have to say, a lot of the listeners to this podcast will be executives running content companies, thinking a <laughs> yes. hell of a lot of my content is ripped off, and it's, it, it yeah. is a very interesting. It's a huge issue, and you know, my view is that. We have a a general problem with a lack of understanding of technology on the part of parliamentarians. And congressmen. And congressmen. Not just British politicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I meant meant parliamentarians in the broadest sense uh, in every country. And we have huge commercial interests. And too often the, the issue is viewed as some kind of battle between Silicon Valley and Hollywood. And what gets lost in that is... Ordinary people are using the internet. Ordinary people intersect with copyright law in a way that they never did in the past. So Google has this content ID system where they can identify musical tracks and either pay the royalties or take it down or or whatever. It's entirely possible now that if you're at your kid's birthday party and you film a little shot and you upload it to YouTube so you can show grandma, Google will detect the music that was playing in the background and turn off the soundtrack. And so now that's annoying because you're not clearly not pirating the song. You're just using media 
in a consumer way that most of us would say, well, that's perfectly fine. That's not piracy. So when we get into a situation where we have new ways people are using content, if you go back 50 years ago, copyright law was really just an industrial regulation. It didn't affect ordinary people's lives on a day-to-day basis really at all. And now everybody kind of interacts with it. And so that's a pretty big deal. And it changes the dynamics of things. And we need to update a lot about copyright law, but it's very hard to do because the interests... You have to have a sort of clear, clearer divide between people who steal stuff for commercial use and people who inadvertently use stuff exactly. in a day Exactly, de minimis use. I mean, one of my favorite examples, and it's an area that we've managed to get almost zero progress on with the European Parliament, is freedom of panorama. So this is, if I take a photo of something that's outdoors, such as a building... And I post that on social media. This is something everybody does all the time. I can be technically in violation of copyright if the building is new enough that the design is still under copyright. And most countries around the world, or many countries around the world, have a right of freedom of panorama. We have it here in the UK. So if Thomas Heatherwick has opened a new building or structure outdoors, and I take a picture of it and I post it on social media, that's not violating his copyright in that. But France doesn't have that. It's the kind of thing that you would think it would be easy to get this fixed because everybody understands that, gee, common sense that this is the way people are using the internet. Also, there is no really strong commercial interest on the other side. Architects don't actually make any money from pictures. And maybe they do make some money from picture books, but... Wait till we have the rows when you're wearing your augmented reality glasses, which serve up an <laughs> advert on the side of the building. <laughs> well, that's a, interesting. And there's a debate Ooh, between the owner yeah. of the building but and the advertiser. But all of these things are tough and complicated, and really the, the devil's in the details. And I had thought, uh, hoped, that we've moved beyond a very simplistic debate, but in the most recent European uh, parliamentary debates, I, I feel we, we haven't actually... So you get these... It is a tough one. I mean, I, I obviously have a, a huge amount of sympathy for the, for the creators. You know, in, intellectual property should be as valuable as I agree f- physical uh, yeah. property. But one of the things that I felt when I was responsible for it in government was that technology would, to a certain extent, answer a lot of these questions. And arguably, you know, we've just, uh, on the day of this interview in the UK, we've just had a report out about the value of the music industry to the UK economy. It's worth four and a half billion keeps going up in value and of course 10 years ago people were talking about the death of music uh, what yeah. happens is that technology well, is catches where, up yeah. and starts this to serve where, people content this is where i say I, I feel if you make it easy to pay people will pay yeah this is where large. i feel that that the debate should have moved on a little bit in the sense that it's no longer plausible to claim that the music industry is dying they're enjoying record revenues record digital revenues that doesn't mean there's no problems of course but it does mean you know, things like Spotify have really put an enormous dent in music piracy. Now, a lot of the debate is is really around how do we get different platforms to pay more? And that's a commercial dispute. If the music industry wants to make YouTube pay more, great, I don't mind. That's not my issue, right? Yeah. I'm happy for that to happen. But if it has to happen by restricting the rights of ordinary people to do ordinary things with their lives, that is a problem. And we need, need to be very nuanced about Just as a, an interesting kind of postscript, if you like, and coming back to Wikipedia, I was always fascinated uh, to discover, particularly because I've got a strong interest in culture, you know, that a lot of museums place copyright on photographs of their exhibits. I mean, I did pick up this uh, story that, you know, the Rosetta Stone page on Wikipedia, it has more visitors than the entire British Museum website. I'm not even sure if uh, 
the British Museum official photograph of the Rosetta Stone is actually on that Wikipedia page, which may be something to do with copyright. I may be out of date with that, in which case I profusely apologise to the British Museum. But that was an anecdote I was told. Well, that doesn't surprise me. And actually, what we've seen now is a real change of mind at a lot of cultural institutions, uh, museums. So I can tell a story many, many years ago. I got quite a nasty letter from a museum here in London who said, oh, we've checked our records and we don't have any record of us giving you permission to have this photo of this painting in Wikipedia, so we insist you take it down. I said, the painting's 400 years old. It's not under copyright. Like, you literally have no legal ground, so bring it, you know. They didn't, of course. But I also, because I was a bit more um, hot-headed back in the olden days, I said, let me quote you from your website, the mission statement of your museum, which is <laughs> to bring culture to the people, right? You should be ashamed. Like, we're bringing culture to the people. And in fact, it's beneficial to you. And actually, a lot of museums have come around to the view of, if we have a, a building full of stuff nobody's ever heard of, it's not even a good business model, right? Even if they forget their cultural mission, which is to share knowledge and culture, if they forget that and they're just really worried about the narrow sort of ticket sales, they really need to be in Wikipedia. People I need mean, to learn about the Rosetta Stone. And then if they're in London, as people come to London as tourists and they think, what are the, my list of things? I read this amazing, the, the Rosetta Stone is one of this amazing cultural artifact. I want to see it in person. And they'll go down there. And so a lot of museums have come around to that. And the British Library actually was one of the first. We have a program called Wikipedians in Residence, uh, where someone will go into a museum. It's normally a part-time job. And they'll work with the curators to help them understand Wikipedia and how to make sure that all of the objects in the museum are documented well in Wikipedia. And that's been very successful. And that's a complete 180 from the era when they're like, oh, we didn't give you permission to have this photo. It's like, how can we give you photos? How can we work with Wikipedia in a respectful way? Thank goodness that's changed. Hopefully we'll see more changes like that. One of the other things that interested me was how you are using technology in, in new ways. This is going to be a bit of a rambling question because basically it's, it's when I met your <laughs> chief executive from... Um, Catherine. Yeah, yeah, I'm just checking whether the photo in the Rosetta Stone might now be Hans Hillewart. Yeah, it's, it's not an official photograph of the Rosetta Stone. She told me that I thought that you could make some money from it. But that's sort of irrelevant. That you were using, I think, kind of AI technology or something to... Yeah, in a very limited way. It's called ORES. Every edit to Wikipedia goes onto a page called Recent Changes. And... There are people who make it their hobby to monitor recent changes. Uh, and a lot of that work consists of just taking a quick look at something somebody's done and making sure it isn't vandalism, making sure it isn't problematic. And so now we have a technology that looks at all those edits as they come in and tries to categorize them. And you can customize a filter so that you can view it in various different ways, depending on what you're interested in. Personally, what I've set my filter to that I like to click on is potentially bad edits that appear to be done in good faith by new users. So those are some key identifiers. And that's what I'm interested in. Like, oh, new people come in and they've done something wrong, but according to the AI, it doesn't seem to be malicious. That's interesting because that's probably a potential user you could talk to and say, hey, wow, thanks for your edit. You didn't do it right, but here's how you can do it. And so that, that's interesting. I'm not sure how accurate it is. So it's really kind of a, a test. A lot of people are finding it useful to look for vandalism, to look for things like that. But we're very far. So if you think about the way I've described it, that is literally it. 
oftentimes people imagine or think that we must be very close to a point where AIs can write Wikipedia entries from scratch, and, and we're nowhere near that. That's a very, very distant problem. When we have bots writing articles, which we do have some, but that's really very simple. There's a template and a database, and it's matching things up. And that's a very old thing in Wikipedia. I remember very early on, somebody took a bunch of U.S. government data, census data, about every city, town, village in the U.S., and they created a short entry on every place in the U.S. that just said, here's the population, and here's the demographics, and here's the income, and so on, and made all these articles, which was great. It doubled the size of Wikipedia in about a month. That was useful. Those articles are not brilliant. Uh, There's a compendium of data, but it gave a starting point for people, and then those have been edited, obviously, much further since then. So there's some things like that, but that's really very, you know, in terms of AI technology, that's not AI technology. That's just coming up with a format and plugging in the data uh, in a clever way. So we're very far from that because uh, I think once we are to the point that an AI could meaningfully engage in an entry about abortion in a way that is in some way even comparable to that kind and thoughtful Catholic priest and kind and thoughtful Planned Parenthood activist, now we're into full-blown AI singularity kind of world. And we're not there yet. Jimmy, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I think that, actually, I think that Wikipedia is a massively underappreciated resource. It's like it's always there for us. We use it and search it, but we don't really appreciate uh, the phenomenon that it is, the size it is, uh, the community created, and also I think the lessons that we can learn it's interesting, I think, in public debate about TechLash, no one says, look at Wikipedia. They manage a lot of this difficult stuff very well. I mean, I, I guess the one final sign-off question I want to ask you, which is a bit mischievous. You know, I could be having a conversation with one guy who's built a website that's used by roughly a billion people who's uh, not particularly rich. And I could be talking to another guy who's built a website that's used by two billion people who's worth 34 billion dollars do you have any regrets that you're not worth 34 billion dollars uh, no that would be that'd be so annoying <laughs> <laughs> you kind of no, you, not really you I, gave I, wikipedia to the people I, yeah i mean the the thing that i always say about that is my life is so incredibly interesting you know i can meet with anyone i get invited to meet with all kinds of amazing people i go where i want i do what i like that it's just hard to even imagine i mean if you think about here in london the number of bankers in this city who make far more money than I ever will, I wouldn't trade my life for that at all. Not many of them live the kind of interesting life that I do. Unless they work at Lion Tree, of course. Of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Or if they know me, then they get invited to my fabulous dinner parties. Exactly. Um, Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Jimmy. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Great. Brilliant. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.